Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Though he hated to admit it, Joshua felt it a slight disadvantage. Bill's works were brilliant, even though he himself was a highly respected artist, and there was no reason to suggest Bill's work was more exceptional or more accomplished than his own. There was something about Bill's paintings that was memorable, exceptional. He didn't want to compete with him. If he said no, Bill would simply enter something else. If he said yes, it would not only be a contest between the two of them, but he would have contributed in a perverse way to Bill's possibly winning. If Joshua won, Bill would be ambivalent. If Bill won, Joshua would be envious naturally and inevitably it would change things between them. Already at times he found himself resenting Bill's confidence. It was an attractive trait. Bill was charismatic and people were drawn to him. At times Joshua felt diminished by it, particularly when they were out together. Sometimes he thought people saw him as simply tagging along. He felt sure Bill would instantly dismiss these worries, but his insecurities were deep-seated and he found them difficult to overcome. Will you let me paint you in that chair with that determined look? Don't you ever give up, said Joshua. You forget how well I know you. You will overemphasize in your own way, distort me. He got up from the chair and walked to the window, deliberately turning his back on Bill. That won't please me, nor will I let a painting determine who I am. What are you afraid of? I'm not afraid. I have nothing and no one to be afraid of. You are afraid. You're afraid that I'll expose you, that I might paint you honestly, see who you are. Joshua turned and stared at him. And who might that be? You tell me. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm joined by Kim E. Anderson to talk about her new book, The Prize, a work of fiction inspired by the real-life events around the 1943 Archibald Portrait Competition. Kim, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks, Greg. Pleasure to be here. The Prize is set in 1943 at the height of World War II, what was Australia, and Sydney in particular, like culturally and socially? Yeah, Australia was a very interesting place at that time because it had um, come through Federation and it was growing as a sort of country and as a city. And you had the development of the Liberal Party coming through. They hadn't yet formed. And so you had this sort of deep conservative component of Australia that was being confronted with cine reels of the war. They were getting information much more quickly from overseas. They were starting to develop their own sense of identity through magazines and so on. And so you had this sort of very conservative component of the community that still referred to the UK as the home office. People had begun travelling. International travel was, you know, you could sort of take a ship that would only take six weeks, not 12 months. And so people were really starting to be exposed to ideas in Europe and the rest of the world 
and was starting to sort of change. And you had this influx of post-war immigrants and a lot of Jewish people coming here as refugees, Polish refugees. So there was this sort of beginning of the second wave of immigration, if you want, starting to happen, and that was really changing the way people viewed themselves and and viewed change. And as, you know, this case is about, it's about the fact that what was happening in Europe was there was, you know, new new artists like Picasso and Manet and Monet and all of these people starting to develop um, different styles and that was a challenge for conservative Australia who were used to art being depicted as a very in a very European context. So, you know, you look at those beautiful Elliot Grinners and so on and you're starting to see the landscape change to be very Australian and not with that sort of beautiful English overlay on it. So let's get to the Archibald Prize itself. What was the status of the Archibald Portrait Prize at that time? The status was huge. Archibald had put in place the prize specifically to ensure that he created an art award that really cultivated controversy. He was a bit of a stirrer and he didn't want an art prize that was just sort of helping artists, you know, live. He actually wanted one that stirred up debate and controversy in the community. And What had happened in the early years of the Archibald, it was the richest art prize in the world at the time. So every artist uh, who thought themselves of any sort of merit entered. It was a huge amount of money, 400 guineas at the time, hundreds of thousands if you think about it today. But it was um, very much driven by artists who had exemplified themselves in portraiture of judges, military officers, politicians, and those portraits were very much designed to hang on the walls of family homes and to be photographic in their likeness because they were really creating a memory for a family more than anyone else. And so the Archibald, you started to see um, different kinds of portraits come through, and that was the controversy for Bill, was that he'd painted a portrait that wasn't a photographic likeness and it it wasn't going to hang on the halls of some family hallway with, you know, ancestors lined up. And there'd been numerous winners who'd won it many times. In fact, the field of winners was minute given it had been going for 27 years. I think there was only seven winners. So there was this view held by artists that unless you did a photographic likeness, you weren't going to get selected. Of course, the People's Prize at that time didn't exist. And so there was really two schools of thought about the Archibald. There were the people who who derided it and ridiculed it because there was so little chance of winning and that there was such a small selection of winners. And there were people who just went, you know, I've got nothing to lose and was important for them because it fed them. Let's get to that portrait. It's a portrait by William Dobell of his friend, Joshua Smith. When we look at that painting today, most people see a fairly straightforward modernist portrait. Contemporary eyes might wonder what all the fuss is about, but in 1943, what did people see in that portrait? The problem for Dobell was that some people saw it as a caricature, which was not within the rules of the bequest. Uh, It had to be a portrait. And today we look at portraiture, it can be anything really, can't it? I mean, you know, sometimes it might be just someone's eyes or an outline of somebody, but in those days that transition from a photographic likeness was still 
very much the accepted way of painting portraiture. And so, you know, Bill's elongation of Joshua was, to your point, almost minimalist, really. Um, and I should say that the current painting is not the original, and sadly we don't have the original anymore. It was burned badly in a fire, and so what you have is a somebody's view of what it looked like, and Dobell himself didn't like the restoration of that painting. Um, but it was, it was to your point, it was, in our eyes, what was all the fuss about. But Mary Edwards, who challenged the trustees' decision, felt that it was a caricature, that it that it indeed wasn't a portrait and therefore ineligible to win. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to talk to you about writing history as fiction. And writing fiction in this case, historical fiction, means that the author has granted a, or grants himself a license in a sense, to imagine what might have been, to explore your protagonist's life beyond the factual. What kind of research did you pursue to establish that factual framework and at what point do you leave that behind and engage your imagination? It's such a good question, Greg, and it's so hard to do. First of all, when you decide to fictionalise somebody and not change their names and to rely heavily on the actual events, you do so with enormous, I did at least, with an enormous sense of responsibility. So I was really careful in my research to do as much as I could, sadly, because homosexuality was illegal in 1944, a lot of the primary resources that you would normally use in your research were not available. So, for example, William Dobell requested that all his papers, his photographs, any personal effects were burned. So, unfortunately, what that also meant was his sister Alice, who lived with him until she passed away, uh, all the records that included hers went as well. So there's very little, it was very hard to find. I could find one photograph of Alice. There's nothing in the Newcastle Library, nothing in the Newcastle Herald archives. So I talk to my characters a lot when I write and I often ask them questions like, is that fair? And I didn't want to, somebody I think wrote a review saying, oh, you weren't courageous enough, you didn't make it into this full-blown love story. Somebody can write that book, but that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying to show people that for them the the fear of being exposed in their relationship or the fear of their relationship being seen as something perverse was really heightened in the 40s. And so I wanted to give people that sense of anguish if, if they were ever exposed as homosexuals, how that would play out. And, of course, it was well known that Bill was a homosexual. It wasn't known until much later, uh, in fact, almost after Joshua had died, that his niece came out and confirmed that. But there was a lot at risk for these characters, and so I, I, I didn't want to just sort of make hay while the sun shine. I really wanted to put myself in their shoes and go, how would I have felt being at risk of going to jail effectively because I have this really important relationship with Bill and. In my view, it wasn't a fling. And the reason I say that is because in the original um, recordings done by Dobell with the ABC after the case, the sense of loss in his voice is huge. And he talks about Joshua in such a loving and respectful way. And he sadly notes that Mary Edwards had ruined a beautiful friendship. And when I heard 
that tape, I just wanted to cry because I thought, oh, this this poor man can't even express his grief for the loss of his friend and and I think his lover because that would have exposed him to yet another court case probably. In order to bring your characters to life and to project their personalities requires something extra of the author too, doesn't it? It does. And as I said, I, I had to put myself in their shoes. Louisa, Joshua's mother, was a very interesting character and she defined for me a lot of Joshua as a character. And the reason was because she was very, for her time, she ran the family a bit like a company. She was very good at ensuring uh, that they had artistic soirees at her house, etc. But also Joshua painted 35 portraits of her. That's a lot of portraits. We forget that Joshua Smith was also a significant artist and he subsequently won the Archibald in 1944. But unfortunately for him, the events of the previous year might have cast a shadow over Smith's own career as an artist. It did overshadow what came after, and unfortunately many people thought that that was a consolation, that the, the trustees had actually awarded him that prize because he'd been through so much. I mean, he'd been excoriated in the court case. He was an exhibit. He had to stand up and have people dissect him um, anatomically, which must have just been so humiliating. So I could have really demonised Joshua because he changed his mind. Originally he did like the portrait. He really liked it and then he changed his mind. And so my premise for the whole of the writing of the book was why did he change his mind? He'd had a lot of ill health. He was very insecure. And so I think he just felt I need to go with the majority here. I'm, I'm you know, I'm in a bad place. And I did read later um, from a recent book, which I really enjoyed reading, which was um, Mary Edwell Burke, um, The Case That Stopped a Nation. Um, the author of that book, whose name just escapes me, um, he did suggest that Joshua was fearful of being outed by that painting. And so there would have been another uh, motivation for him to say he didn't like it. In other words, no, it's not me. It doesn't look like me. I don't look like that. What sense did you get through your research of the relationship between Bill and Joshua and how is that reflected in the narrative? There's a couple of things that were odd that struck me as odd. Um, first of all, the the court case and the press said that they'd only known each other casually and if you hark back to that period, that first of all they were in the Allied cause together uh, where they actually painted barns and uh, air hangers and so on to as decoys against the potential Japanese air raids. So they'd actually camped together and during that time they were called camapansies um, because they were, you know, it was well known that they were gay. And of course they, although they at times shared a tent with other officers, they also had their own tents. So that sort of I was sort of like, okay, I can understand that. Other artists, of course, were there as well, Donald Friend and I, I think Sid Long might have been one of them. But it's very interesting that they did know each other well and that yet in the court case even Bill says, oh, I only, I only knew him casually. And that was, I think, to protect themselves against this sort of witch hunt. They spent a lot of time together at Wanji. And so, you know, when you go to Dobell's house, and I encourage anyone who reads the book to go there, you get this really unassuming, very humble cottage on the lake 
filled with beautiful sketches by Bill of mostly naked men. They all hung out together either at Wanji or in King's Cross, and, and they, they had lots of fun. I mean, they they there's a wonderful story by Michael Kirby, who was, of course, gay and, of course, we all know couldn't come out for many years. He tells this wonderful story that one Sunday afternoon they're all sitting around making play models of male genitalia. This is people like Sid Long and Donald Friend and Dobell and Joshua. And as a joke, they throw them into the next-door neighbour's house, which is Mary Edwards, where Mary Edwards lived into the garden and because they're still wet clay and she calls the police and the police come along and say, look, we've heard rumours that you're you're dismembering men and throwing their genitals into the next door neighbour's garden. I mean, so you can see there was lots of fun and bonhomie and, yeah, I think they had a lovely time. Well, that sounds like provocation to me. And uh, one of the wonderful things about this book is uh, the way you bring to life the supporting cast. One of those is Mary Edwards. Quite a few personalities, though. Uh, Louisa, that's Joshua's mother, and Alice, which is Bill's sister. Everyone loves Alice, don't they? I, I'm fortunate. I have, to, I have, I'm one of eight. Me too. <laughs> Great. And you know what it feels like. And I had an elder sister who very much took up on the role of, you know, parent, some aspects of parenting, not all of them, when we were walking to school and things like that. So I was able to get a sense of how Alice might have seen her brother, and of course. The family disconnected after they found out about his homosexuality. But Alice, she was my favourite because she was party to a lot of confidential information and she never shared that. And there are no, to the point I made earlier, there's no record of her ever speaking to the press about the case. You know, she lived at Wanji. It's a one-bedroom cottage, you know, so she would have seen a lot. And that ability just to protect her brother I thought was really admirable. So... I really enjoyed writing Alice and I had a lot of fun writing Mary Edwards because, you know, she did cavort in Sydney with her hair tied in plaits and coiled around her ears and she did wear great big bows on her head and and her sartorial splendour was notorious. So, um, so I had a lot of fun with Mary. The second half of the prize is given over to the subsequent court case over the 1943 Archibald winner and through that you, you've seized the opportunity to create a thriller a courtroom drama, if you like, replete with authentic characters and raw ambition as motivation. And, of course, the presence of Garfield Barwick, the prosecuting barrister. I had a lot of fun writing Barwick. He, as you know, you know, he was the longest-serving Chief Justice of the High Court, and he was very ambitious. He later joined the Liberal Party. He was very keen to cement his career, and this was a case that he thought would in fact do that because it was so high profile. I always imagined him as a raven, a sort of a crow pecking off, you know, ducklings off a pond and, you know, pecking at roadkill. And it's actually one of my favourite chapters in the book is when Joshua goes to see him and has a chance to state why he's not going to step up and and, um, appear in court or speak in court. And the irony of that, of course, is that he he does end up having to be uh, an exhibit in the case and being excoriated by, you know, various people who come along and determine whether or not he looks, you know, like a cadaver, whether he looks like he's been beaten up by the New York police. And all of those things are straight from the transcript. So I, I had fantastic primary source material to base that on. So all the dialogue in the court scenes 
is actual court dialogue. Considering the scandal that accompanied this period in Australian history and the trauma it inflicted upon William Dobell and Joshua Smith, it must be regarded as a significant moment in queer history. But your book, The Prize, reminded me that this is also a love story. Yeah, it is a love story. And I don't think they probably were the first people to uh, be fearful of being exposed about their relationship. There were many people who couldn't write their stories and couldn't be honest about their sexuality for fear of, of retribution and not just official retribution but other retribution as well. So I hope I hope it I hope the book shows people how awful it was. I mean these two people never spoke to each other ever again after this court case. They didn't actually ever personally meet, speak to each other on a telephone or answer each other's letters. So it had a huge impact on them. And I just think hopefully, you know, we can start to retell history from a different perspective for the price that some of these people paid just because of their, you know, sexual preferences or how they identified in terms of their gender. So I'm hoping we continue to rewrite history because it's always someone's perspective. It's it's never just the facts. Well, that's what historical fiction is all about, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Kim Anderson, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Greg. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Kim E. Anderson about her new book, The Prize. It's published by Pantera, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.